Have you ever wondered why a certain house in your neighborhood has stood abandoned for years or even decades? Or maybe you've heard about a terrible murder in your town, but you've never known exactly where it happened. Hi, I'm Jules, and welcome to Morbid Tourism, the podcast. On this podcast, I'm going to talk about the true crime cases that may have happened closer to home than you thought. Warning, this episode includes disturbing content, including descriptions of extreme violence, violence against children, and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. In the 1920s, the neighborhood of Los Feliz was growing fast. The neighborhood is located just outside of Los Angeles, and at its north border lies Griffith Park. In 1924, famed architect Frank Lloyd Wright had finished building a huge home, which is known as the Ennis House, in Los Feliz. The home has a really unique, almost Aztec-style exterior, and it was actually built using these large, interlocking concrete bricks. And like I said, it gives it just this really unique look. At one point, a man named George Hill Hodel moved into the house, and if that name sounds familiar, it's because it's long been speculated that Hodel was the perpetrator of the famous Black Dahlia murder, which officially remains unsolved today. But we're not going to get into the Black Dahlia murder today. The Ennis house should be familiar to fans of horror movies, although they might not know it. Its exterior was used as the house in the Vincent Price classic, The House on Haunted Hill. Over the years, the home has been used in dozens of other movies and TV shows, including Blade Runner and even Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Although the Ennis house has become somewhat of a horror icon in and of itself, real-life horrors occurred just across the street from this iconic house. The large Spanish-style mansion at 2475 Glendower was built just one year after the Ennis House completed construction. It sits perched on a steep hillside, and when the dense LA smog clears, it has a million-dollar view of downtown Los Angeles. The front yard contained gorgeous gardens and a winding walkway up the hill to the front door. The interior of this house is massive. It contains five bedrooms, three and a half bathrooms, and it even has a ballroom and staff's quarters. So we're talking a huge house. The home was perfect for an affluent family to fill. The Perelson family, which consisted of Dr. Harold Perelson, his wife Lily Perelson, and their three children, Judy, Debbie, and Joel, moved into the home in the mid to early 1950s, although I couldn't find an exact year of when they moved into the home. Dr. Harold Perelson was the son of immigrants, and he had moved to California from New York after completing medical school. He was a very, very talented doctor, very bright, and he landed a job really quickly at a physician's office in Inglewood. But that job alone couldn't keep Harold's curious mind busy by itself. He was always looking for the next big thing that was really going to, you know, catapult his career 
and hopefully make him a lot of money. By the mid-1930s, he began working on a medical invention, and I... I am not a medical mind, so it's a little difficult for me to understand exactly what this invention was, but the way I understand it, it is a uh, glass syringe that essentially would cut down on the risk of contamination, you know, the wrong medication or, you know, other bacteria or something getting into a syringe, and it would also help with avoiding spillage from syringes. He worked on this invention in his free time for 10 years. An entire decade of his life was spent working on this invention. He really believed that his idea was ingenious and it would make him rich, but he wasn't really a good salesman and he didn't have the know-how of how to get a product manufactured and basically into the mainstream medical community. You know, he was a brilliant doctor and medical mind, but these other kind of facets of actually turning that invention into something that could make him money, he just wasn't as good at. So in 1949, Harold partnered up with a man named Edward Shustak. Edward and Harold basically agreed that Edward would help develop the product, make it ready to enter the general market, and then they would split the profits down the middle, each man getting 50%. While the syringe product was in development, Harold continued to work his way up in his actual career. He started publishing more medical papers, and those caught the attention of the medical community in Los Angeles. Through these papers, he started to really gain notoriety, and he soon became a professor of cardiology at the University of Southern California, or USC. The job was highly rewarding for Dr. Perelson, both mentally and fiscally. The salary from this role, plus the money that he believed was coming from his invention, allowed him to purchase the home at 2475 Glendower for about $60,000, which in today's money is about $680,000. The home wasn't his only expense, but believing that his invention would sell quickly once it hit the market... Harold sunk a large chunk of money into developing this invention, and he even borrowed money from his wife Lillian's savings to fund it. He really believed that he was investing something and that the return on this investment would be completely life-changing for his family. In total, he spent about $32,000 on developing this product, and that's the equivalent of about $330,000 today. But by 1952, it appeared that the doctor had made a really bad decision in trusting Edward Shustak with the development and the sale of this device. Edward was really nothing more than a con man, and over the course of several years, Edward had taken the money that he was given by Harold and spent it on basically whatever he wanted. He had no real intention of ever splitting the money with Harold, and he intended to keep 100% of whatever profits he could garner from the invention. Edward created a completely bogus company and essentially entered into shady agreements that removed Harold's right to the product and its potential revenue. It's really unclear if Edward had actually had any intention whatsoever of really getting the syringe made or bringing the invention to the market at all. But in the end, there wasn't a product, it never hit the market, and it would never make either of the men wealthy. 
Of course, when Harold discovered that this was going on and that Edward really had sold his rights to the product and he was never going to split the profits with him, he was understandably really mad. He sued Edward for $100,000 in damages, which is upwards of a million dollars today. But Edward wasn't the type of man to just give in easy, and he fought the lawsuit, and he fought it hard. The case became more and more drawn out and actually lasted over two years. Finally, in 1952, Dr. Perelson was awarded $50,000, half of what he had sought out in the lawsuit. And while $50,000 was still a very significant amount of money, when you take into account the thousands that he must have spent on legal fees, plus the $32,000 that he had already invested into the product, it really didn't leave him with much. A decade of really, really hard work was essentially lost, and the payday that Harold had hoped was coming was now never going to come. Harold attempted to put the event behind him and build a happy life for himself and his family in their beautiful Los Feliz home. He continued his work as a professor at USC and also continued working as a doctor, but money was getting tighter than Harold had hoped. In November of 1957, Judy Perelson, who was 16 at the time, she was driving around in her father's old mobile with her siblings in the car with her. Although it's not completely clear who was at fault, the Oldsmobile collided with another car, and all three of the Perelson children were injured in the crash and required medical care. Although the driver of the other car claimed that Judy had actually run a red light and that's what caused the crash, Dr. Perelson sued the other driver for $50,000. He intended to use this to help cover the cost of the medical bills, Plus, he sought additional damages, which is not uncommon in these types of lawsuits. After a fairly short battle in court, the Perelsons won the case, but they were only awarded a few thousand dollars, basically just enough to cover the basic medical bills and the other damages that Dr. Perelson had sought uh, money for would go unrewarded. Although Dr. Perelson was fairly successful, it became more and more clear that he hadn't made the best financial decisions. Expenses continued to stack up, and the chance of a big payday that Dr. Perelson had hoped for was becoming less and less likely. Though their financial situation was kind of becoming dire, the family continued to spend as if there was no problem at all. You know, they were used to a certain type of lifestyle, they were used to nicer things, fancier things, and so they continued on living as if there was no financial issue whatsoever, even though they really didn't have the amount of money that they had hoped for and really didn't have the amount of money that they were spending. Judy, who was a popular teenager, she was driving a brand new sports car and she loved shopping. A neighbor even said that Judy had stacks of shoeboxes in her room. Dr. Perelson was just more stressed than ever. You know, as a father, he didn't want to not give his children everything they wanted. And after so many years of basically giving them whatever they wanted, it was fairly difficult for him to then hold back and not be able to be that provider that he wanted to be. He was actually admitted to the hospital several times, and although his friends and neighbors thought that it was for minor heart attacks, legal records actually state that they were suicide attempts. 
he was once the kind of person who couldn't be brought down and only saw a bright future ahead of him, but that future had begun to close in around him and left him feeling like there was just no way out. By early December of 1959, the three children had begun to put together their Hanukkah lists, and Dr. Perelson knew that he could no longer continue to act like everything would be okay. He couldn't risk his colleagues and neighbors and friends knowing that he was actually on the brink of losing everything that he had worked for. He also knew that if he killed himself, his family would be left with the burden of a ton of debt that he would leave behind. He decided that instead of facing the shame and the reality of the situation that he was in, he would kill everyone in his family. After dinner on December 6th, 1959, Lillian and the children went to bed just as they did every other night. Harold, though, he stayed up, debating with himself and attempting to convince himself that he was doing the right thing. By 4.30 a.m., he had built up enough courage to carry out an attack. He retrieved a ball-peen hammer, which this is the type of hammer that one side of the head, one side of the heavy part, is actually rounded like a ball. He took the hammer up to the second floor of the master bedroom where Lillian was asleep in the bed that they had shared for decades. With one strong swing, Harold brought the hammer down hard on Lillian's head, inflicting a wound an inch wide and deep on her skull. She didn't so much as stir, while the white pillowcase below her head turned red. Having set the plan in motion, Harold then crept into his eldest daughter, Judy's, room. Again, he brought the hammer down hard on Judy's head, but luckily, he miscalculated this blow. Though he hit her, he didn't hit her hard enough to cause the same type of injury that he had inflicted on Lillian. Judy immediately started screaming and she cried out loud enough that multiple neighbors in the vicinity actually woke up and heard her yelling. Harold was still trying to see his plan through and he attempted to get her to lay back down so he could finish the attack. But Judy continued to scream at the top of her lungs and she actually managed to run out of the room escaping from her father. Instinct told her to go to her mother, but upon entering her parents' room, she saw the body of her mother, and with her head and pillow covered in blood, Judy knew that it was too late. Instead, Judy fled the house. Although it was only 40 degrees outside and she had just suffered a major head injury, she ran undeterred down the steep hill in the front of the house through the winding gardens and began banging on the door and windows of a neighbor's house. After getting no response from this first neighbor, which I understand if I was someone and I just heard someone screaming and then someone's banging on my front door, I probably wouldn't have opened the door either. But luckily, Judy made her way to a second house, a second neighbor, and the second neighbor, whose name is Marshall Ross, he let her inside of his home and basically got her safe. While Judy was seeking safety with Marshall Ross, her two younger siblings were still in their rooms. Both had woken up after hearing Judy screaming, and Dr. Perelson went to their rooms. Instead of continuing with his plan to murder everyone, it seems that by then he had changed his mind about killing his children. 
He instead told them that they were just having a nightmare and that they needed to go back to sleep. The children, though, were too scared after hearing the commotion. They were not convinced by their father that they were just having a nightmare. So they ended up going downstairs to the first floor, but they stayed at the house. They didn't leave. Marshall Ross, the neighbor who had answered the door for Judy, he was very concerned about the remaining children in the house after hearing what had happened to Judy. He called the police right away, but this neighborhood is up a winding hill, and he knew that it was going to be a while before the police were able to actually get to the house. So he decided to take it upon himself to go over to the Perelson home and make sure that the other children were okay. When he went to the home, he did find the two younger children on the first floor, and although they were visibly shaken, they were otherwise unharmed. Their father had not tried to attack them, thank goodness, you know, but they were still shaken up. They had heard their sister screaming, they didn't know what was going on, and of course, that's terrifying. Marshall continued up the stairs to the second floor of the house where he saw Dr. Perelson. All of the fight had left Dr. Perelson, and he simply told Marshall to, quote, go on home, don't bother me, end quote. Marshall then witnessed the doctor go into an upstairs bathroom. Convinced that there was nothing further he could do for the doctor, he went back to the children on the first floor and ushered them out of the home to safety. Police arrived at the Perelson home several minutes later. Dr. Perelson was found lying on a bed, barely breathing, with blood covering his hands. He had ingested a mix of Nembutal, which is a strong sedative, and codeine. Nembutal is actually the same thing that killed Judy Garland, and my research said that it's often sought by people who are hoping to commit suicide quickly and painlessly. Because Dr. Perelson was a medical doctor, he must have known that this is a drug that could cause him a quick and relatively painless death, and he also had easy access to the drugs, so he had brought them home. He died shortly after the police arrived. An autopsy was performed on Lillian, and it was determined that she had become paralyzed from the head injury, but her ultimate cause of death was asphyxiation. After being struck in the head, she could no longer breathe on her own, and that was the ultimate cause of her death. Judy was taken to the hospital where she received treatment for a fractured skull. She ultimately survived the brutal attack, though. Lillian's family assumed responsibility for the children, and none of the children or the family has ever publicly spoken out about the events of that night. It appears that they have made a very serious effort to not be found and to leave the awful events in their past behind them, which I completely understand. The mansion went on the market in 1960, less than a year after the attacks, and it was bought by a couple relatively quickly. Although this has never been confirmed, legend has it that the new family never moved into the home, but rather left all of the furniture and the items that the Perelsons had left behind still sitting in the home like a time capsule. The home sat for years, and years turned into decades. Urban explorers who knew of the house would visit the house, and they would sneak photos through the dusty windows. I'll post some of these photos on the Instagram, and they are available on our website as well, but the photos are really eerie, to say the least. They really do appear to show a home whose family just up and left, leaving items strewn about, 
as if they had just left to go to the store and would be back any minute. There was even a fully decorated Christmas tree in the living room with wrapped presents still under it. Those that have looked at the photos in extreme detail, like crime journalist Jeff Mache, claim that the photos actually disprove the legend of the home containing all of the Perelson's original furniture. For example, the copy of Time magazine that appears in one of the photos is from several months after the murders. It's also really unlikely that the Perelson's had a Christmas tree since the family was Jewish and didn't celebrate Christmas. Although that seems to solve the mystery of the Perelson's belongings in the home, it does beg the question of whose furniture is it then? Who would just up and leave their house that's worth a fortune and let it sit and collect dust while all of their belongings are still inside? Who takes the time to lovingly wrap Christmas presents, then just leaves them behind and never retrieves them? The new owners of the home seemed to live out their days elsewhere, and although a burglar alarm was installed to keep out unwanted guests, the house was otherwise untouched. In 1994, a man named Rudy Enriquez inherited the home when his mother, who was the previous owner and had bought the home from the Perelson estate, after she had died. Like his mother, though, he left the home pretty much untouched. He would visit once in a while to kind of make sure that the home didn't have any major damage, like a broken window or something like that, but otherwise he really kept his distance from the home and made no attempt to clear the interior of the decades-old furniture. In March of 2016, Rudy Enriquez listed the home for sale for $2.75 million. Although that might sound like a lot, remember that this is a huge mansion in Los Angeles where small condos regularly sell for upwards of a million dollars. It sat on the market for several months before finally being sold for about $2.3 million, about $400,000 less than he was originally asking for. And although it's easy for us to think that this price drop might have something to do with the dark history of the home, it's really more likely that it was because the home had been sitting in complete disrepair for decades, and essentially it had to be completely torn down to the studs in order to be made livable. For three years, the new owners attempted to make renovations to the home. They took out all of the old furniture, and they really did tear it down to just the studs. They had to replace the walls, the floors, the ceilings, everything. By May of 2019, it appears that they likely ran out of money to do these renovations, and they put the house back on the market before they were finished. Photos from the listing show that extensive renovations to the home had begun, but it was largely unfinished. They had, you know, like I said, taken out the floors, the ceilings, the walls, and they had actually put in new studs and flooring, but a lot of the walls were unfinished, the ceilings were unfinished, uh, and it was absolutely a work in progress. The nostalgia of the interior and the old home was pretty much lost completely, though I'm sure it was absolutely necessary. The new owners then attempted to recoup some of their money by placing the house on the market for $3.5 million, which is $1.2 million more than they had bought it for. After several price reductions and being on the market for a year and a half, the home finally sold for $2.35 million on December 10th, 2020, 
missing the anniversary of the murder-suicide by just three days. Hopefully the new owners are able to restore the home back to its former glory and make it a loving home once again. Although if I were them, I would stock up on some sage. Thank you for listening to this morbid tourism episode about the Los Feliz murder mansion. If you like learning about morbid locations, subscribe to Morbid Tourism on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please leave us a rating and a review. Let us know what you think. New episodes will be released weekly. Between episodes, visit morbidtourism.com to learn about more morbid locations. Follow us on Instagram at morbidtourism. This podcast is researched, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jules Kruger. Additional research by Amanda Pukert. Sources for this episode include the Medium article titled The Murder House by Jeff Mache, Wikipedia, and Zillow.